All right, we're going to move along now with spinal cord injury, talking about the medical complications of spinal cord injury. Important levels to remember are T6 and above, and individuals with uh, spinal cord injury are considered to be at risk of autonomic dysreflexia and orthostatic hypotension at T6 or above. That's a very important level to remember. T8 and above, if the lesion is at T8, the patient cannot regulate and maintain their normal body temperature. So you get a high uh, thermal dysregulation. And central temperature regulation in the brain is located in the hypothalamus. So let's talk about a little bit about orthostatic hypotension a little bit first. So it's a state of transient reflex uh, depression caused by a lack of sympathetic outflow and triggered by tilting the table or the patient upright to greater than six, um, 60 degrees. Uh, the lesions are, again, it's at a lesion of T6 or above. From T1 to L2 is responsible for tachycardia vasoconstriction and increased arterial pressure. That's where the uh, sympathetics come from is the... Uh, thoracolumbar region, and the parasympathetics are from the craniosacral. So heart and blood supplies, uh, blood vessels are supplied by uh, T1 to T7. So the mechanism is you have an upright position causes a decrease in blood pressure. You have aortic and carotid baroreceptors that sense decrease in blood pressure and would usually increase sympathetic output in neurologically intact individuals. However, efferent pathways are interrupted following a spinal cord injury. The brainstem is unable to send messages through a spinal cord to cause sympathetic outflow and vasoconstriction of splanchnic bed and to increase blood pressure. Orthostatic lesions with time due to, excuse me, orthostasis, orthostasis lessens with time due to development of spinal postural reflexes, which allows for vasoconstriction due to improved autoregulation of cerebrovascular circulation in the presence of perfusion pressure. So symptoms include lightheadedness, dizziness, presyncope, nausea, and pallor. Signs include hypotension, which is a loss of sympathetic tone, uh, decreased systemic venous resistance, dilation of blood vessels, of venous vessels in particular, lead to a decreased preload in the heart. You also get tachycardia with aortic and carotid baroreceptors responding to hypotension. However, there is an eruption of efferent pathway that precludes increase in sympathetic outflow. Therefore, parasympathetics are still inhibited, resulting in tachycardia. Symptoms persist, however, because the increase in heart rate is not sufficient to counteract the decrease in blood pressure. And you may get syncope as well. For management, you want to talk about repositioning. You can put them in Trondellenburg or recline the, the, the wheelchair. Typically, we would start more with um, non-pharmacological agents, specifically elastic stockings, TED hose, abdominal binders, ACE wraps, as well as accommodation, use of a tilt table. We also talk about... Um, uh, getting them up into position slowly throughout the morning or over a period of about 15 to 20 minutes to help them accommodate there. You may also need some fluid resuscitation with increased fluid intake. What's difficult here is if they have a neurogenic bladder, you can also have bladder distension. So there's a balance of a lot of this that goes along. Um, pharmacologic agents include salt tabs, uh, one gram four times a day. I don't love using salt tabs for that. I think that that's not the greatest use of that. Midadrin can be used. Um, it's an alpha-1 adrenergic agonist, and you can go 2.5 to 10 milligrams up to three times a day. Fluoronef is a mineral corticoid, which can also be used, uh, 0.05 to 0.1 milligrams daily. Once the orthostasis improves, the patient may be at risk for autonomic dysreflexia. So moving on to autonomic dysreflexia. Um, the mechanism is a syndrome of massive imbalance, imbalanced reflex sympathetic discharge in patients with spinal cord injury to, uh, above the splanchnic outlet flow or outflow. So again, above T6, um, 
is where we want to see it. T6 and above and affects 48 to 90% of susceptible patients. Autonomic dysreflexia is secondary to the loss of descending central sympathetic control and hypersensitivity of receptors below the level of the lesion. So the pathophysiology is all, there's always a noxious stimuli um, that increases sympathetic reflex spinal release. This occurs below the level of the lesion. The region, there's regional vasoconstriction that causes a marked rise in arterial blood pressure. There's also, this also increases peripheral vascular resistance and increases cardiac output with increases in blood pressure. Aortic and carotid baroreceptors respond to decreased blood pressure and relay impulses to vasomotor uh, centers in the brain. Impulses via vagus nerve uh, that cause bradyc uh, bradycardia. However, this is not effective in combating the increased blood pressure. Bradycardia, while classic, is not always seen, and tachycardia, including tachyarrhythmias, like uh, atrial fibrillation, can occur. I've seen that happen. Um, I've seen patients that have gone into autonomic dysreflexia and had tachycardia. Uh, please note that the brainstem is unable to send messages through the injured spinal cord to decrease sympathetic outflow and allow vasodilation of splenic blood to decrease the blood pressure. Um, the onset is usually after spinal shock, and it may occur within two to four weeks post-injury. Uh, usually it happens a little bit later. If it occurs in a patient, he'll present within the first year and greater than 90% of cases. Classically, it occurs in patients with neurological complete spinal cord injury that are apt to have more severe symptoms, although it may occur in patients with incomplete spinal cord injury. So I've seen this happen in patients with incomplete spinal cord injuries, Asia C's, that were pretty high. Um, no, it's not necessarily exclusive to complete injuries. It happens more common. I've also seen questions about it where it was at the level of about a, a patient had a, uh, an injury at the level of T8 or T9, and all of the other classic symptoms were there. And the answer was autonomic dysreflexia, so something to, to look out for. So again, the cause is a noxious stimuli below the level of the lesion. It's most commonly from the bladder, um, overdistension or infection, followed by bowel, fecal impaction. I was once told that the most common cause, the five most common causes of Autonomic dysreflexia are urinary retention, urinary retention, urinary retention, urinary retention, and urinary retention. Um, so again, the most common cause is a, is a bladder that's blocked catheter or distended bladder. You can also have bowel or fecal impaction, abdominal emergency such as appendicitis, cholecystitis, or pancreatitis. Labor can cause it, pressure ulcers, fractures, ingrown toenails. Orgasm can even cause it, urinary tract infections, appendymitis, or epididymitis, um, bladder stones, and gastric ulcers. So signs and symptoms. Headache. That's one of the classic ones. Sle sweating and flushing above the level of spinal cord injury. Elevated blood pressure. So the definition of it is an increase in blood pressure of 20 systolic or 10 diastolic above the normal. Now in general, especially in the acute phase, blood pressures are a lot lower in, uh, excuse me, um, resting blood pressures are a lot lower. It's not uncommon to see a spinal cord injury patient in the 90s to 100s systolically and 60s to 70s uh, diastolically, 60s to 70s. So an increase of greater than 20 over 10 is, is uh, the definition of this. Um, you can also have piloerection, pupillary constriction, and sinus congestion. So for the management of this, the first thing that you do is you sit the patient upright. It's the first aspect of treatment. And loosen all tight clothing. Um, and devices such as elastic band from the urinary, urine leg bag, elastic stockings, abdominal binders. And the ultimate treatment is the identification and removal of noxious stimuli. Um, early bladder evaluation is needed. So if they have an indolent cath, flush it. Um, otherwise, catheterize the patient to see if there's anything in there. The first time I remember seeing this, the patient had, I want to say, 1,100 cc's of urine in his bladder. It was pretty unbelievable. 
and he had been adhering to his bladder protocol and his fluid restriction protocol pretty um, accurately. You want to monitor blood pressure every two to five minutes during the episode and monitor for recurrent symptoms for at least two hours after resolution to ensure that it does not recur. Medication should be initiated if blood pressure is significantly elevated, um, greater than 150 milligrams of mercury uh, systolically, and one is unable to find a source quickly. It should be started prior to checking for fecal impaction in the event that early bladder sur uh, survey yields no improvement in blood pressure or symptoms. So pharmacotherapy. In the acute st um, uh, phase, there are a number of options used. Initially and predominantly, nitro paste is one of the best things to use, up to two inches, and should be removed once the noxious stimuli is corrected. This acts pretty instantly and is wiped off pretty instantly. Clonidine can also be considered, and procardia can also be considered. ICU management um, may require a number of medications that can be used, diazoxide, nitroprusside, hydralazine, and labetalol. Prevention is only occasionally required, and options include alpha and beta blockers. In pregnancy or surgery, spinal anesthesia is recommended during delivery with a spinal cord injury at T6 or above. Uh, really, um, epidural anesthesia or spinal anesthesia is really the best thing to help prevent autonomic dysreflexia from occurring during pregnancy or delivery. Some complications of autonomic dysreflexia, especially if hypertensive episodes are not treated, um, can include retinal hemorrhage, cerebrovascular accident, subarachnoid hemorrhages, seizures, myocardial infarction, and death. Again, this is one of the true rehab emergencies uh, specific to kind of this kind of uh, population that we have. Autonomic dysreflexia predisposes the patient to cardiac dysrhythmias, such as atrial fibrillation, by altering the normal pattern of repolarization um, of the atria, making the heart susceptible to reentrant type arrhythmias. So there is a chart on page 578 that kind of um, goes through some of this. Again, we'll just do a quick review. Orthostatic hypotension. The trigger is tilting the patient greater than 60 degrees, and it's due to lack of sympathetic outflow with a lesion T6 or above. You get lightheadedness, dizziness, syncope, hypotension, um, air, and, it's, and tachycardia as well with aortic and carotid baroreceptors responding to hypotension. Um, treatment is usually repositioning the patient, elastic stocking, abdominal binders, fluids, and medications. Autonomic dysreflexia is due to a noxious stimuli below the level of the lesion, and it's due to too much sympathetic outflow and loss of descending control or hypersensitivity. It usually occurs within the first six months or first year of, after an injury, and a lesion is, again, T6 or above. Headaches, or symptoms include headache, sweating or flushing above the level of, of SCI, pupil erection, pupillary constriction, and sinus congestion. You also see bradycardia, and you can also see hypo, hyperthermia. It doesn't mention that as well. Hyperthermia is usually one that happens here. Um, I've also had patients where the presenting symptom for this was hypothermia, a patient that dropped down to was like 93 or 94 degrees, and he was in autonomic dysreflexia once we checked his blood pressure. And once we had a good um, bowel movement and um, able to check his bladder, it resolved. Um, again, the treatment is sit the patient up, remove noxious stimuli, and treat the hypertension. Um, usually uh, nitro paste. Again, this is a true emergency. Bladder dysfunction, uh, neurogenic bladder, is one of the most common problems that we deal with in spinal cord injury patients. So we're going to review the neuroanatomy and neurophysiology of the voiding. And there's our, there are central pathways, which include the frontal lobe or the corticopontine mesencephalic nuclei that inhibits parasympathetic sacral micturition centers and allows bladder storage. And you have the pons with the pontine mesencephalic nuclei that coordinates bladder contraction and sphincter relaxation. And loss of control from this center can result in detrusor sphincter dysynergy. Um, pelvic and pudendal nuclei with sacral micturition 
that integrate stimuli from cephalic centers and mediate parasympathetic sacral S2 to S4 micturition centers, or reflex. And you have the motor cortex to the pudendal, pudendal nucleus, which is a voluntary control, which is a contraction and inhibition of external um, urethral sphincter. Peripheral path pathways also exist. Um, there are parasympathetic efferents, with the origin being the detrusor nucleus and the intermedial um, lateral gray, uh, gray matter at S2 to S4, with the course traveling through the pelvic nerves to parasympathetic receptors of the detrusor muscle, and the function with stimulation of cholinergic receptors that causes bladder contraction and emptying. You also have sympathetic efferents, which originate in the interior medial lateral gray matter from the T11 to L2. So again, remember parasympathetics are craniosacral and sympathetics are thoracolumbar. And as we get lower in the thoracolumbar, that's what we're talking about, the bladder. The course travels through the hypogastric nerves to alpha-1 and beta-1 adrenergic receptors within the bladder and urethra. The function is the stimulation of the beta-2 adrenergic receptors within the body of the bladder that causes smooth muscle relaxation or compliance, plus the stimulation of alpha-1 adrenergic receptors within the base of the bladder. Prostatic urethra also causes smooth muscle contraction, which increases outlet resistance, leading to urine storage. Somatic efferents include the pudendal nerve, or the pudendal nucleus of sacral segments, S2 to S4, and the courses that travel through the pudendal nerve. So parasympathetics through the pelvic nerve, sympathetics through the hypogastric nerve, and the somatic efferents through the pudendal nerve to innervate striated muscle of external urethral sphincter. And the function is voluntary contraction of the external urethral sphincter that prevents leakage or emptying. And then you have an afferent fibers that uh, the origin is the detrusor muscle stretch reflex, external, and, um, external anal and urethral sphincters, the perineum and the genitalia. These travel through the pelvic and the pudendal nerves to the sacral cord, and the function is that myelated A-delta fibers respond to bladder distension, stimulating parasympathetic emptying of bladder and unmyelinated C-fibers are silent and not essential for normal voiding. However, increased activity seen following spinal cord injury um, can be seen. The target of capsaicin and resiniferectoxin to control uninhibited contractions. You also have your urethral sphincters. The internal sphincter is mostly innervated by a T11 to L2 hypogastric nerve, which is sympathetic. It's under the control of the autonomic system, largely uh, a large number of alpha adrenergic receptors, and contracts the sphincters for storage. And it's smooth muscle and involuntary. And then you have the external, anal sphincter, or external urethral sphincter, which is innervated by the pudendal nerve, S2 to S4, prevents leakages emptying, and is skeletal muscle and is voluntary. And there is a chart uh, diagram on page 580, figure 723, that kind of goes through uh, what this kind of looks like. Um, so again, with the bladder receptors, you have cholinergic or muscarinic receptors that are located in the bladder wall, the trigon, the bladder neck, and the urethra. You also have beta-2 adrenergic receptors that are concentrated in the body of the bladder, also some in the bladder neck, and norepinephrine binds to the beta-adrenergic receptors to cause relaxation. Alpha-1 adrenergic receptors are located within the base of the bladder and the prostatic urethra, and norepinephrine binds to the alpha-1 adrenergic receptors to cause contraction. So the bladder wall does not have any baroreceptors. Please note that. So alpha-adrenergic receptors respond to the appearance of norepinephrine with contraction, and beta-adrenergic receptors respond to the, uh, to the appearance of norepinephrine with relaxation. So normal bladder storage versus um, emptying, 
Normal bladder storage, there's a sympathetic response that is encouraged during fight or flight. So the sympathetic tone predominates to promote internal sphincter contraction and bladder relaxation to allow for storing urine. Um, the T11 to L2 sympathetic efferents travel through the hypogastric nerves to activate alpha-1 and beta-2 adrenergic receptors. Again, remember the alpha-1 are found in the neck to cause contraction, and the beta-2 are found in the bladder, the bladder wall, that cause relaxation. This is how we allow for storage. The neck is contracted and the bladder wall is relaxed. Um, the, with normal bladder emptying, you have, this is a parasympathetic response encouraged during relaxation. So the parasympathetic tone predominates during normal bladder emptying, causing bladder contraction and emptying. So the S2 to S4 parasympathetic efferents travel through the pelvic nerves to activate cholinergic, muscarinic, or M2 receptors that are located within the bladder wall, the trigone, the bladder, and the urethra. Acetylcholine stimulates cholinergic receptors in this area, causing the bladder contraction and emptying. The beta-2 adrenergic receptors are activated by norepinephrine upon initiation of voiding to cause relaxation of the bladder neck. And this promotes emptying. So remember, sympathetics store and parasympathetics make you pee. There, you can do urodynamics for evaluation of urinary function. Uh, systometry is something that's fairly common. This is kind of a sensation, capacity, and the presence of involuntary detrusor activity. They're all evaluated during a systemetrogram and your dynamic study. A typical urinodynamic study can be seen in picture, uh, figure 725 on page 582. It's kind of difficult to read through these. Um, it's hard to explain without visualizing what exactly is going on. Um, sensations, uh, sensations evaluated include the first sensation of bladder filling at about 100 milliliters, the first urge to void, which is a proprioceptive sensation, and a strong urge to void, which is also a proprioceptive sensation. The accepted normal bladder capacity is about 300 to 600 milliliters. Well, um, the functional bladder capacity is equal to the voided volume plus the residual uh, urine volume. So normal distributor contraction and detrusor pressors and pelvic floor EMG can also be done as part of this. Post-SCI genitourinary function and management includes acutely with patients in spinal shock that typically present with an areflexic bladder, which retains urine. This can last from a week to many months, but most cases resolve in two to 12 weeks where they're no longer areflexic. The initial management is with an indwelling catheter, especially while intravenous fluids are administered. This allows for urine removal and monitoring for urine output. An intermittent catheterization program should be established once patients can tolerate a fluid restriction of 2 liters a day. This can be started as early as 7 to 15 days post-injury. Long-term goals include a balanced bladder with low bladder pressures, urinary, urinary continence, minimizing the risk of urinary tract infection, and minimizing the risk of upper tract deterioration or infection. Again, urinary dynamic studies should be performed to assess the function of the bladder neck, the external sphincter, and the detrusor. Please note bladder dysfunction is closely related to the level of injury, so we can have an upper motor neuron or low motor neuron injury. Intermittent catheterization has reduced many of the associated complications of the indwelling catheter, including UTI. Additional benefits include improved self-image self and being more conducive for sexual activity. 
intermittent cath volume should be less than 500 milliliters, and frequency of caths is most feasible four to five times per day, corresponding to about two to two and a half liters uh, fluid restriction. If the patient opts for more, uh, more fluid intake, you may have to increase the frequency of bladder catheterization. Um, and if there's a family involved, that may be difficult having to get up uh, every four hours in the middle of the night to do a, to do a uh, catheterization. Bladder volume should be maintained below 500 milliliters to avoid vesicular uh, urethral reflux, which is a phenomenon caused by bladder wall hypertrophy and the loss of the vesicular urethral angle. Um, under normal conditions, in the absence of bladder wall hypertrophy, reflux is prevented by the anatomy of the ureter, which prevents the bladder oblique, uh, obliquely through the trigone, which penetrates the bladder obliquely through the trigone and courses several centimeters into the bladder epithelium. It also helps um, if you have less than 500 milliliters to prevent overflow incontinence and hydroureter. So a little bit concerning upper motor versus lower motor neuron uh, bladder. In lower motor neuron bladder, you, have, you tend to have a failure to empty, whereas in upper motor neuron, there's a failure to store. For lower motor, the causes are commonly resulting from flaccid bladder and or uh, spastic sphincter. In spinal shock, the reflex arc is not functioning due to initial trauma. This is seen in conus medullaris, cauda equina syndrome, syndromyelia, and acute CVA with detrusor A reflexia. In upper motor neuron, the failure to store, the causes include, or the causes are commonly results from spastic bladder or detrusor hyperreflexia. So, in, again, the, in lower motor, a failure to empty, and upper motor, failure to store. You may also have an incompetent sphincter in upper motor neuron. In spinal cord injury, the, the return of the reflex arc after the initial trauma starts with this. Subacute CVA can also have detrusor reflexia, hyperreflexia, and multiple sclerosis is most commonly seen with detrusor um, hyperreflexia. The lesion in loaded lower motor neuron involves the sacral micturition center from S2 to S4. The lesions exclusively involving the peripheral innervation of the bladder can also occur. In spinal cord in, or in upper motor neuron, you have lesions above the sacral micturition center, anything above S2. In lower motor neuron, it can result in a large areflexic flaccid bladder that occurs in lower motor neuron injury with tight spastic uh, sphincter. You also can also have a result to, uh, failure to empty. The treatment is intermittent catheter, uh, catheterization, crudet maneuver, which is suprapubic pressure, valsalva maneuver, but you need to make sure bladder pressures are safe when performing this technique, and drugs to induce urination. Bethanicol stimulates cholinergic receptors in the lower motor neuron injury rarely used in spinal cord injury, and alpha blockers if upper motor neuron injury to relax sphincter, so you can block alpha uh, adrenergic receptors. In upper motor neuron, it can result in small, overactive, and a spastic bladder with failure to store. And the treatment is drugs to allow for urine storage. Anticholinergic medications are most commonly used, ditropan, detrol, and others. And stimulants of alpha and beta receptors to allow for the, the storage of urine are also used, tofranil and ephedrine. So again, in the lower motor neuron injury, the internal anal sphincter, or excuse me, internal urethral sphincter may have increased tension and prevent voiding. And when the bladder can no longer expand, urine leakage occurs during or via overflow incontinence. In an upper motor neuron injury, the failure to store, there is no suppression of the sacral micturition center, resulting in an overactive and spastic bladder with detrusor hyperreflexia. As a result, the patient voids prematurely. And these can also be seen on uh, urodynamic studies. And there's examples of the urodynamic studies throughout this chapter. 
The trusor sphincter dyssynergy is a combination type bladder. Up to 85% of spinal cord injury patients Up to 85% of spinal cord injury patients can develop detrusor sphincter dyssynergy. Neurologically, a neurological injury between the sacral um, S2 to S4 and pontine micturition centers causes a lack of coordination, regulated uh, lack of coordinating coordinated regulation of bladder dysfunction. This can lead to above normal bladder pressures determined by urodynamic studies and should be treated to minimize renal dysfunction. The result is a small overactive spastic bladder, detrusor hyperflexia, and a tight spastic internal sphincter with sphincter hyperactivity. So if you think about it, you're squeezing the bladder against a spastic sphincter. And the result is a failure to empty, and if able, it will do so under high voiding pressures. The risk, if not treated, is a very big one of vesicular urethral reflux, which is retrograde urine flow from the bladder toward the kidneys. It results in increased residual volumes, colonized infected stagnant urine, high pressure voiding against a closed sphincter with risk of vesicular urethral reflux. And the treatment is anticholinergic medications to relax the detrusor and suppress uninhibited bladder contractions, thereby preventing long-term complications of vesicular urethral reflux. Intermittent catheterization can also be used, Botox to the detrusor wall, alpha blockers uh, that open the bladder neck, and sphincterectomy can also be considered. So the pathophysiology of vesicular urethral reflux, again, the normal anatomy is there's a one-way valve mechanism that remains competent as long as the oblique course of the ureter within the bladder is maintained. During relaxation of the bladder, when urine is being stored, the ureter pumps urine into the bladder. During bladder contraction, the valves shut uh, the valve shuts closed. As a result, the bladder is emptied with no reflux of urine into the ureters. In an abnormal bladder anatomy, the bladder wall hypertrophy uh, causes, <clears throat> causes the course of the distal ureter to become progressively perpendicular to the inner surface of the bladder. The vesiculo-urethral junction consequently becomes incompetent, permitting reflux of urine. During relaxation of the bladder, the ureter pumps urine into the bladder. The valve cannot close during bladder contraction uh, given the perpendicular orientation of the distal ureter to the inner surface of the bladder. As such, urine is forced up the ureter to the kidney and hydronephrosis can result. Reflux can uh, be further complicated by acute or chronic pyelonephritis with progressive renal failure. Urinary tract infections in SCI are very, very common. Uh, they are generally caused by endogenous flora of the host overcoming the competing normal flora of the host defense mechanism. Acidic urine inhibits microbial growth, and UTIs are prevented by the washout effort of large volumes of urine. The large flow of urine impedes the adherence of microorganisms and dilutes their concentrations. The presence of the UTI is affected by the virulence of the invading microorganism, condition of the urine as the culture medium, and host defense mechanism. So the management, you have asymptomatic UTIs and prophylaxis of UTIs, asymptomatic bacteria in an SCI patient's being managed with an indwelling catheter or, an, or intermittent catheterization is generally not treated. In addition, the use of prophylactic antibiotics to prevent UTIs after SCI is generally not supported. Vitamin C supplementation and methanamine salts can be used to, uh, as acidifying agents. Exceptions include patients undergoing invasive procedures such as cystoscopy or urodynamics, presence of vesicular urethral reflux, or growth of urease-producing organisms, protease, pseudomonas, klebsiella, providentia, E. coli, 
and staph epidermidis. Please note the urea splitting organisms uh, produce struvate calculi made of ammonium and ammonium uh, phosphate. A lot of these people won't know if they're, if they're asymptomatic or not, and their symptoms tend to be more of a systemic involvement as opposed to uh, the, the typical burning urgency and frequency that you see. For symptomatic UTIs, a UTI is generally treated when the when criteria are met, and that includes significant bacteria, which is a clean-catch midstream urine specimen with the presence of greater than 100,000 colony-forming units per ml, or bladder catheterization with greater than 100 organisms. Pyuria with the presence of greater than, than 10 leukocytes, and clinical signs and symptoms. This is probably key here, with fever, malaise, increased spasticity, or neurogenic pain. Catheterization frequency is increased to reduce... Uh, bacterial concentration and remove the urine that serves as a culture medium for bacterial growth. A Foley catheter may be necessary if volumes are too large for an IC program or if intermittent catheterization is too difficult for the patient and the family to achieve. Most common urinary tract complications in neurogenic bladder include irregular thickened um, bladder wall and small diverticuli at the, are the earliest changes. Vesicular urethral reflux is 10 to 30 percent of poorly managed bladders leads to pyelonephritis and renal stones. Hydronephosis and hydroureters caused by outlet obstruction can also be seen. Over distended areflexic bladder, reduced bladder compliance, and kidney and bladder stones can also be seen. Some of the complications can be prevented by adequately draining the bladder of pressures below 40 uh, centimeters of H2O, either by intermittent catheterization in conjunction with the use of anticholinergic medications, or by timely surgical relief of outflow obstructions that would not otherwise respond to medications. Sexual dysfunction after SCI is another complication that people are often that that are people question about frequently. Male sexual act includes male erectile and ejaculatory functions that are complex physiologic activities that require interaction between vascular, nervous, and endocrine systems. Erections are controlled by the parasympathetic nervous system, and ejaculations are controlled by the sympathetic nervous system. Again, the re, uh, erections are controlled by a reflex arc that is mediated in the sacral spinal cord and is modulated by higher brainstem, subcortical, and cortical centers. Reflex arc afferent limb involves somatic afferent fibers that originate in the genital region and travel through the pudendal nerve to the sacral spinal cord. And the efferent limb involves parasympathetic fibers that originate in the sacral uh, spinal cord and travel through the catequina via S2 to S4 nerve roots. You also have postganglionic parasympathetic fibers that secrete nitric oxide, which causes relaxation of smooth muscle of the corpus cavernosum and, and increased blood flow to the penile arteries, with vascular sinusoids of the penis becoming engorged with blood, with blood resulting in an erection. Ejaculation uh, signals the culmination of the male sexual act and is predominantly controlled by the sympathetic nervous system. It is similar to sympathetic innervation to the bladder, with nerve fibers originating in the thoracolumbar spinal cord, T11 to L2, and travel through the hypogastric plexus. They innervate the vas deferens, seminal vesicles, and ejaculatory ducts. In erectile dysfunction, men with a spinal cord injury may, re may obtain reflexogenic um, or psychogenic reactions. About uh, greater than 90% of men with complete and incomplete upper motor neuron lesions and uh, um, up to 12% with complete lower motor neuron lesions can, can obtain these erections. So more common in upper and less common in lower are erections. Psychogenic erections are seen in 50% of men with incomplete upper motor neuron lesions and 25% uh, with complete lower motor neuron lesions. They are not seen in patients with complete upper motor neuron lesions. Reflexogenic uh, erections can occur independently 
of conscious awareness and the supraspinal input mediated by paraspinal division of autonomic nervous system through S2 to S4 roots. And they can occur secondary to manual stimulation of the genital region. However, once stimulation has been removed, the erection may no longer be sustained. Psychogenic erections involve uh, supraspinal effects from erotic stimuli that result in cortical modulation of the, of the sacral reflex arc. Erection is mediated by central origin um, and psychological activation centers. As previously noted, erections are more likely with incomplete lesions. Oftentimes, the quality of erection is inadequate for intercourse. As such, the erection can be augmented or induced. And there are methods to induce the erection, such as oral therapy with phosphodiesterases, such as sildenafil or vardenafil. Um, they are used with success in the spinal cord population with upper motor neuron lesions. And, they have, and you want to avoid in patients taking nitrates and monitor for hypotension. And you want to use caution in patients with risk for autonomic dysreflexia as well. You can also consider intracorporeal injections with prostaglandin E alpha blockers and vasodilators. You want to counsel about the risk of preaprism. Penile implants are effective but have high failure rates, and there's a risk of infection and penile erosion. You can also consider vacuum devices or penile rings. A lot of these other ones were used before things like Viagra became more uh, common and more easily accessible. For ejaculatory dysfunction in men with spinal cord injury, the ability to ejaculate is less than the ability to obtain an erection. The rate of ejection of ejaculation varies depending on the location and the nature of the neurological injury. Approximately 5% of men with complete upper motor neuron lesions and 18% with complete lower motor neuron lesions have ejaculations. The percentages are higher with incomplete injuries. Achieving ejaculation does not ensure successful reproduction as sperm quality and motility is uh, somewhat affected in spinal cord injury, and an evaluation from a reproductive specialist may be needed. Semen analysis in men and spinal cord injury reveals, in men with spinal cord injury, reveals decreased sperm count and sperm motility. Sperm retrieval in men who are unable to ejaculate can uh, be done by penile vibratory stimulation and can be used at home. However, there is caution in patients at risk for autonomic dysreflexia and electroejaculation if, a, if a penile vibratory stimulation is unsuccessful and may be painful in incomplete lesions. And there is caution in patients at risk for autonomic dysreflexia and medical supervision is required. You can also consider prostate massage and surgical sperm removal which can include testicular sperm extraction, aspiration, microsurgical uh, epididymal sperm aspiration, percutaneous epididymal sperm aspiration, and aspiration of the sperm from the vas deferens. Male infertility after spinal cord injury um, shows that there is uh, fertility impairment. As previously mentioned, two major causes are ejacular dysfunction and poor semen quality. And poor semen quality is secondary to stasis of the prostatic fluid, testicular hyperthermia, recurrent UTIs, abnormal testicular histology, changes in hypothalamic pituitary testicular axis, possible sperm antibodies, type of bladder management, and long-term use of various medications. Prostatic fluid stasis uh, causes decreases in sperm motility, and studies have shown improvements in semen quality after two to four electroejaculations. For sperm count and motility indices, sperm counts are lower in men with prostatic inflammation. Uh, leukocytes with WBC greater than 10 to the 6th power in the spermatic fluid, reduced total sperm count 41%, sperm velocity by 12%, and total, total modal uh, sperm 66%. This is the single worst predictive factor for inability to penetrate an ovum is leukocyte concentration in the semen. Post-infective changes, including testicular atrophy and epididymal duct obstruction, may affect fertility. 
Abnormal testicular histology is the most common finding noted on biopsy with atrophy of the seminiferous tubules, and no investigations have found a significant correlation among biopsy finding, le finding level of injury, length of injury, hormonal changes, and number of UTIs. Now moving on to some of the female sexual act. Um, sexual excitation is the result of a psychogenic and physical stimulation. Stimulation of the genital region, including the clitoris, labia majora, and labia minora, causes afferent signals to travel via the pudendal nerves to the S2 to S4 regions. These fibers interact with the, with the efferent parasympathetic fibers that project through the pelvic nerve, resulting in dilation of arteries to the perineal muscles and tightening of the introitus. Bartholin's glands secrete mucus, which aids in vaginal lubrication. The female orga orgasm is characterized by the rhythmic contraction of the pelvic structures. Female orgasm also results in cervical dilation, which may aid in sperm transport and fertility. Decreased libido is reported after spinal cord injury and is likely due to a combination of psychological and physio physical changes um, after injury, including a change in self-image and altered sensation to the genital region. Uh, female infertility after spinal cord injury. Um, immediately following a spinal cord injury, amenorrhea occurs in about 85% of women with cervical and high thoracic injuries and 50 to 60% of women overall. However, 50 to 90% respectively have return of menstruation within 6 to 12 months after spinal cord injury. Um, and it does not affect the female fertility once menses return. What's also interesting here is it doesn't talk about upper or motor, motor nerve neuron type of injuries. It also doesn't talk about the age of classification. If you have a spinal cord injury, this is just what happens. doesn't matter the severity. It can be problematic. Uh, birth control can be problematic for spinal cord injury women. Generally, it's not used in the first year if possible after injury, especially in patients with thromboembolic disease present. Condoms can provide protection. Diaphragms uh, need adequate hand dexterity, and oral contraceptives are associated with increased risk of thromboembolism. You can consider progestin-only oral contraceptives or use combination pills that have low-dose estrogen. Implants can also be used. Intrauterine devices, or IUDs, can increase risk of pelvic inflammatory disease, which may lead to autonomic dysreflexia. Uh, the likelihood of pregnancy after spinal cord injury is unchanged because fertility is unimpaired. Pregnant women with spinal cord injury may develop pressure ulcers, recurrent UTIs, though there's not enough evidence to support prophylactic antibiotics for all pregnant patients with spinal cord injury, and there is frequent surveillance of cultures and alterations of bladder management to decrease residual volumes as recommended. You can also see increased spasticity, decreased pulmonary function, and autonomic dysreflexia, which may be the only clinical manifestation of labor. The uterine innervation arrives from T10 to T12 level. Patients with lesions above T10 may not be able to perceive uterine contractions. The treatment of choice is epidural anesthesia. Epidural mepiridine, bupivacaine, or fentanyl with bupivacaine have been um, effective in controlling labor-induced autonomic dysreflexia. The depth of general anesthesia needed to control labor-induced uh, autonomic dysreflexia can induce neonatal depression and uterine atony. You want to avoid general anesthesia with depolarizing agents if the patient had spinal cord injury or other significant trauma within one year as it can cause hyperkalemia. Epidurals should continue for at least 12 hours after the delivery or until autonomic dysreflexia um, resolves. Um, if uh, autonomic dysreflexia is refractory to epidural and regional anesthesia, urgent cesarean or operative vaginal delivery may be necessary. You need to distinguish autonomic dysreflexia from preeclampsia 
And there's also a slightly increased incidence of preterm labor. Patients should be checked for cervical dilation and effacement one to two times weekly after 28 weeks gestation. You can also consider voluntary hospital admission that could be offered after 36 weeks for close monitoring. Um, additionally, there's risk for constipation and thrombo thromboembolism. There's also insufficient evidence to recommend universal thromboprophylaxis during pregnancy in patients with pre-existing spinal cord injury. And if an acute spinal cord injury should occur during pregnancy, the patient should receive at least eight weeks of chemical thromboprophylaxis. You can also see increase in leg edema. We'll move on now to the gastrointestinal complications and bowel management in the spinal cord injury. Neuro neurogenic bowel is another complication that happens fairly frequently in patients with spinal cord injury. This is not nearly as well-controlled well or easily managed as the uh, um, neurogenic bladder. At least um, nothing as clear as a, bladder, uh, a fluid schedule and a, a catheter schedule, things like that. A review of the, of the GI anatomy and neuro neuroregulatory control. The colon is a closed tube bound proximally by the ileocecal valve and distally by the anal sphincter. It is composed of smooth muscle-oriented in the inner circular and outer longitudinal layer. The lower colon and anorectal region receive innervation by sympathetic, parasympathetic, and somatic pathways. The intrinsic enteric nervous system is composed of Auerbach's or myenteric and Meisner's or sub submucosal plexi and coordinates the function of each segment of the bowel. Uh, Auerbach's plexus is primarily motor and Meisner's plexus is primarily sensory and both lie between the walls of the smooth muscle mentioned above. And the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system uh, systems modulate the activity of the enteric nervous system, which in turn inhibits the in inherent activity of the bowel's smooth muscle. For the parasympathetic nervous system, it increases upper GI tract motility and enhances colonic motility, and stimulation is provided by the action of the vagus nerve. It innervates the proximal to mid-transverse colon and by the splanchnic nerves, the pelvic nerves, which originate from the S2 to 4 region and innervate the descending colon, colon and rectal region. Um, the sympathetic nervous system inhibits colonic contractions and favors function of storage. Its innervation projects through the hypogastric nerve via superior mesenteric, inferior mesenteric, and ciliac ganglia. There's also a somatic nervous system that increases inter external anal sphincter tone, promoting continence, and the external anal sphincter consists of a circular band of striated muscle that is part of the pelvic floor. The anal region has the internal anal sphincter, which is composed of smooth muscle under the influence of the sympathetic nervous system, which is T11 to L2 and surrounds the anus proximally. It relaxes with the filling of the rectum in a neurologically intact individual. And the external anal sphincter is composed of a circular band of striated skeletal muscle and is part of the pelvic floor. It helps to maintain continence by increasing its tone and acts under volitional control, learned by maturation, maturation and reflex activity, and it's innervated by the pudendal nerve, S2 to S4. There are higher cortical centers and pontine defecation center that send uh, stimulus for the external anal sphincter relaxation, allowing defecation. With regards to storage and defecation in the neurologically intact individual, for storage, the internal anal sphincter is sympathetically activated, again T11 to L2, allowing for the relaxation and filling of the rectum with uh, stool bolus. The external anal sphincter tone increases secondary to spinal cord reflexes and modulated action of higher cortical regions maintaining continence. For defecation, the rectosigmoid distension causes a reflex of the internal and uh, anal sphincter relaxation, and volitional control or cortical activity uh, sends signal to pontine defecation centers. The volitional contraction of the levator ani muscle 
allows opening of the proximal canal, relaxing the external anal sphincter and pubo-rectalis muscles, and the reflexive rectal propulsive contractions take place, resulting in expulsion of the stool bolus. Colonic dysfunction in the um, SCI patient can depend on upper motor neuron, which is a hyperreflexive neurogenic bowel, and a lower motor neuron lesion, which is an areflexive neurogenic bowel. So in an upper motor neuron uh, spinal cord injury, the GI system can be affected by the loss of sympathetic and parasympathetic input at the transverse and descending colon, resulting in decreased fecal movement and fecal impaction and constipation are the most common complications during recovery. Cortical control is dis- disrupted with decreased ability to sense the urge to defecate. The external anal sphincter cannot be voluntarily relaxed, and the pelvic floor muscles become spastic. However, nerve connections between the spinal cord and colon, as well as Auerbach's and myenteric plexus, remain intact. Stool can be propelled by reflex activity and possible decreased propulsion in the colon. There may be possible increased or decreased propulsion in the colon distally. For lower motor neuron lesions, they are uh, those are lesions below the conus medullaris, such as a cauda equina syndrome, and the reflex defecation is absent. Our backs or myenteric plexus coordinates the movement of the stool. However, movement is slow. Overall constipation results with incontinence due to a flaccid, a flaccid external anal sphincter. The management of, for management of the bowel dysfunction and spinal cord injury. Uh, it can be broken up into acute phase, chronic phase, and long-term management. In the acute phase, there may be an adynamic ileus and gastric atony. According, or the, these occur in about 63% of spinal cord injury patients, resulting from spinal shock and reflex depression. Adynamic ileus usually presents immediately following spinal cord injury and can be delayed 24 to 48 hours and typically resolves within one week. Gastric atony may result in vomiting and aspiration. For management... Um, you can consider a nasogastric tube suction to prevent GI dilation and respiratory compromise for persistent abdominal distension. IV fluids can be considered parenteral nutrition for if greater than three days. If longer, metoclopramide and or erythromycin uh, can be used to stimulate peristalsis if other interventions are unsuccessful. Neostigmine for refractory cases of pseudo-obstruction can be considered. I've never seen that used. Um, I didn't know that that was an indication as well. In the chronic phase, you have colonic distension. Um, problems, uh, there are problems with small bowel motility, uh, pseudo-obstruction with no evidence of obstruction on radiographic studies. Um, there can also be abdominal distension, nausea, vomiting, and constipation. And secondary ca- uh, causes include electrolyte imbalance and medications such as narcotics or anticholinergics. For management, you consider an NG tube suction of gastric atony. Um, remove constipating medications if possible. Oral medications promote stool propulsion or rectal medications such as suppositories or enemas. If the cecum is dilated greater than 12 centimeters, surgical correction for decompression or surgical evaluation for decompression or colonoscopy can be considered. For long-term management, uh, padded upright commode is preferred to, uh, to a side-lying position. If performed lying down, best to be lying on the left side. And you want to maintain adequate fluid intake. Again, that two to three liters per day. Uh, you also want to minimize medications that decrease bowel motility, such as opioids, TCAs, and anticholinergics. And you also want a diet that's moderate in fiber intake, approximately 20 grams a day. And there are several medications that you can use, bowel stimulants and irritants, stool softeners, and suppositories. For bowel medications, stool softeners such as docusate sodium um, increase fat and fluid accumul- accumulation in the GI tract. Uh, oral stimulants such as Senna can stimulate peristalsis by acting on Auerbach's plexus. Additionally, medications can be used, including polyethylene glycol 
in small amounts, which is Miralax. Bowel irritants, such as castor, castor oil, should be avoided in, um, in establishing a bowel program. Bulk-forming agents promote evacuation by retaining or pulling H2O into the colon. Uh, more often used in lower-motor neuron uh, bowel and not usually in upper-motor neuron bowel program initially. These are things like uh, psyllium or metamucil or methylcellulose like cetrosol. Suppository should be placed high against the rectal wall. Uh, glycerin draws water into the stools and stretches the rectal wall. Uh, Bisocodal is an oil base that stimulates peristalsis and sensory nerve endings. A magic bullet is a water base um, and acts faster than an oil base. And you also have enemies, which are 5 milliliter mini enemas of ducusate sodium. And both come with an alternate, alternative form with benzocaine. So when establishing a bowel program, there are goals uh, that initially aim for daily bowel movement. As time progresses, it can be formed daily to every third day. I would shoot personally for it every day or every other day, if possible. The ultimate goal is consistent and complete evacuation of the bowel at a specified time in a relatively short period without incontinence between programs. To assist with the defecation, intact reflexes can be utilized. The gastrocolic reflex is one of them where contraction of the colon occurring with gastric distension. When feasible, spinal cord injury patients should be instructed to perform their bowel programs about 20 to 30 minutes after a meal. Increased colonic activity occurs in the first 30 to 60 minutes after a meal, usually within 15 minutes. Therefore, place the spinal cord injury patient on the commode within an hour subsequent to a meal. The, the rectocolic reflex occurs when the rectal contents stretch the bowel wall reflexively, relaxing the internal anal sphincter. Suppository and digital stimulation cause the bowel wall to stretch and to take advantage of this reflex. Note this reflex can be manipulated by dig stim of the rectum. Digital stimulation is accomplished by gently inserting a gloved lubricated finger into the rectum and slowly rotating the finger in a clock, uh, clockwise circular motion until relaxation of the bowel wall is felt or, uh, or stool or flatus is passed, approximately one minute. Key components of a bowel program for pharmacological intervention, one can start with a combination of stool softeners and stimulants with a suppository and what has been termed a 3-2-1 program. Uh, colase, 100 milligrams three times daily. I typically don't see it used three times daily. Colase by itself, or docusate by itself, is uh, what we would call a musher, and it just mushes it up. You would also want a pusher, so that's why you'd have a mild laxative like Senecott. Um, can be considered two tablets daily, approximately eight hours before the uh, bowel program is supposed to happen. So if you want to have a bowel program in the morning, you take it at night, and if you want to have a bowel program at night, you take it in the, in the morning. And then a docilax suppository. Um, one suppository daily after the meal, usually dinner or breakfast. Others uh, may start with uh, the use of uh, polyethylene glycol orally instead of the oral stool softeners and stimulants and then utilize a suppository. And dietary fiber intake should be uh, encouraged as well. Some complications of neurogenic bowel include fecal incontinence with skin breakdown, ulcerations, and UTI, as well as fecal impaction with nausea, abdominal discomfort, autonomic dysreflexia, some use of lidocaine gel during this impaction uh, to avoid causing autonomic dysreflexia may be warranted. Anticholinergic medications that are prescribed for failure to store bladder, for, um, as well as opioid medications, can cause constipation. Bowel dysfunction uh, affects the patient's community integration, socially, vocationally, and psychologically. If bowel dysfunction is, affects a person's quality of life, such as it takes longer than an hour or you have episodes of incontinence, then additional intervention should be considered. Transanal irrigation has been used effectively and is now FDA approved for use in the United States and has been shown to be effective in both circumstances. Appropriate timing is required. 
Surgical intervention, including interrogate continence, uh, the Malone procedure, and colostomy or less frequently ileostomy may also be considered if diet changes, medications, and previously mentioned techniques fail to produce consistent bowel movements. Other GI complications in spinal cord injury include gastroesophageal reflux. Uh, you want to avoid prolonged recumbency and elevate the head of the bed, avoid smoking, and avoid certain medications such as calcium channel blockers, benzodiazepines, and nitrates, and anticholinergics. Treatments include antacids for mild to moderate symptoms. Um, H2 blockers, metoclopramide, uh, may also be considered for short-term use only uh, because of side effects. For gastrointestinal uh, intestinal bleeding, it's most frequently secondary to perforation and bleeding ulcers. It's most commonly early after injury. Use of steroids may increase the risk. Uh, diagnosed by endoscopy, which is the uh, gold standard, it's the diagnostic method of choice. You may want to consider providing prophylaxis for short-term only, unless otherwise indicated after a spinal cord injury with H2 blockers, PVI, or sucrophate. And the treatment is with an active GI bleed is maintain blood pressure, correct coagulation deficits, monitor complete white count, or complete blood count, specifically the hemoglobin, and consult GI and surgical services. Cholecystitis can also occur, and it's the most common cause of emergency ab abdominal surgery in chronic SCI patients. It has a three times greater risk in spinal cord injuries. Possible causes include abnormal gallbladder motility and lesions above T10, abnormal biliary secretion, abnormal enterohepatic uh, circulation, and should be considered if adynamic ileus doesn't resolve or if it recurs. Treatment includes medical observation and antibiotics and may opt for surgical removal. Uh, pancreatitis is the most common in the uh, first month post-injury. It may be related to steroid use, increased viscosity, or pancreatic, uh, uh, which leads to increased viscosity of pancreatic secretions. It may, you may suspect when a dynamic ileus doesn't improve, and clinical symptoms include abdominal pain, nausea, emesis, and poor appetite. Evaluation includes labs such as elevated amylase and lipase, radiograph, CT of the abdomen, and abdominal ultrasound. Superior mesenteric artery syndrome is another one that we need to consider with spinal cord injury patients. It's a condition in which the third portion of the duodenum is intermittently compressed by overlying superior mesenteric artery, resulting in GI obstruction. Predisposing factors include rapid weight loss, such as decrease, causing a decrease in protective fatty layer, prolonged supine position, spinal orthosis, and flaccid abdominal wall that causes hyperextension of the back. Symptoms include postprandial nausea and vomiting, uh, bloating, and abdominal pain. You can diagnose this with an, upper, with an upper GI series that demonstrates abrupt duodenal obstruction to barium flow. Treatment is typically conservative. Uh, you want to eat small frequent meals in an upright position. Lie in the left lateral decubitus position after eating. Uh, Metoclopramide or Reglan can be considered as well, which stimulates the motility of the upper GI tract and it rarely requires surgery. If conservative measure fails, surgical uh, duodenojejunostomy should be performed. Please remember any condition that decreases the normal distance between the SMA and the aorta, such as weight loss, supine position, halo, flaccid abdominal wall, may result in the compression of the duodenum, uh, described as the nutcracker effect. I think we'll stop there for this one before we get into the next section, um, where we'll talk a little bit more about some of the other uh, medical complications that go along with this, as well as pain and pressure ulcers.